This is Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elana Levin, a.k.a. Elana Brooklyn. Graphic Policy Radio, where comics and politics meet. This is the podcast for folks who know that families belong together and that families of all kinds, races, religions, gender makeups, regardless of immigration status, regardless of where you come from, that our families belong together and that we will not be torn apart. Uh, I'm encouraging folks, if you haven't signed up yet, to attend one of the rallies happening around the country on June 30th to go to um, the National Domestic Workers Alliance website or to move on or just look up Families Belong Together and RSVP for a march or rally where you live. There's going to be one near you unless you're in the middle of Atlantis um, and to show up for your neighbors and show up for everyone uh, in that way. And today I have two really exciting guests on who are making, who just launched, uh, who are among a crew of people actually who just launched a really exciting new original graphic novel for kids um, we're talking about the Cardboard Kingdom. My guests are Chad Sell and Katie Schenkel. The Cardboard Kingdom is a graphic novel about kids, creativity, and cardboard. The book follows a variety of children who all live and play in the same neighborhood. Throughout many chapters, you'll see each child's story unfold, overlap with other kids' adventures, and finally converge upon an epic final quest before summer's end. The graphic novel is a collaboration between Chad Sell, who you've probably seen his drag race art because his drag race art owns the internet, and if you're looking up Drag Race fan art, it'll probably be his. Um, uh, and he's working on this with 10 writers from all over the country, um, folks from all different races and backgrounds and, uh, and orientations, and um, lots of LGBTQ voices are included in the comic, uh, one of whom is also joining us today, writer Katie Schenkel, uh, who has been on the show before, actually, to talk about her pod- to talk about her comic series, Moonlighters, which is a lot of fun. Um, so we'll be talking with them today and talking definitely about, you know, the importance of LGBTQ comics for all ages and about this particular book in particular. I'm incredibly excited to be talking about Cardboard Kingdom. Thank you guys for joining me on the show. Hi, Thanks for thank having you. us. <laughs> Yay. Yay. So, um, you know, I, it's interesting. Like this, this, this is definitely like a long, you know, format, big, chunky, full size, rich with colors and illustrations graphic novel for, for kids. And uh, I'd love to hear from you, Chad. How, how did this project come about? Um, it's kind of a long story, uh, so I'll try to keep it somewhat <laughs> brief. Um, I, I've always loved um, creativity. I think just like as an artist, I think about like what role creativity plays in my own life all the time. Um, in any case, as you mentioned, um, I'm uh, largely known for drawing drag queens on the TV show RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, and, you know, I, I really enjoy that. I love doing that. Uh, but my passion, like my, what I've always felt like my true calling was, uh, has been making graphic novels. And um, I kind of wanted to sort of bring those two worlds together. And um, so I had this idea for a story about this boy, Jack, who dresses up like an evil sorceress. Um, and, uh, with like a cardboard headpiece and a robe and, um, and I really wanted to try telling her story. And, um, at the time I hadn't really done many kids books at the time. So I actually partnered up with a friend of mine, uh, Jay Fuller, who, uh, does a really wonderful web comic called the boy in pink earmuffs. And I thought that he handled queer content in a wholesome all ages comic strip really, really well. And so we did um, The Sorceress Next Door, which was basically an early version of the Cardboard Kingdom's first chapter. Um, And we had a great time. We loved the story. And we both agreed, wow, wouldn't it be cool to follow a whole bunch of different kids in the same neighborhood as The Sorceress and tell all kinds of different stories with all kinds of different kids? Um, And we were both like, huh, yeah, that's a nice idea. Huh. How would we do that? And we sort of didn't do anything with it for quite a while. Um, but it occurred to me, you know, I was seeing how, how incredibly cool uh, the Internet can be a tool for bringing people together. I, I was seeing all sorts of cool Kickstarters, for like comics anthologies for queer comics um, and all sorts of interesting elements of crowdsourcing that can be utilized for creative endeavors. And I thought, huh, I wonder if I could sort of lay out my vision for Cardboard Kingdom and ask whoever, you know, whoever wants to submit, to submit 
their pitch for a kid who lives in that neighborhood and tell their story. Um, and so I, I did that in early 2015 and um, heard from all kinds of people. It was so cool. Uh, I had follow-up calls with a bunch of people and really, you know, certain stories just like clicked and called out to me. Uh, and Katie's was one of them with the big banshee. Um, and so we've been working on the book ever since then. And um, it's like kind of surreal and amazing that it's out and that people like it. Right. Yeah. I, um, I've described it the entire process as a minor miracle that, that uh, Chad was able to bring together the right people for the right project. Uh, there were very little egos with it, and we were all very collaborative and giving of each other. Um, and it really reflects in the book. Um, I'm, I'm always, I always think back about how grateful I am because this was the, this was well before I got pulled into Moonlighters uh, to write Moonlighters. Uh, so this was actually the first comic project I had worked on, and it meant a lot to me that Chad was very open when when he had done his kind of call out for pitches that you don't have to have made a comic before. You just have to really like comics and really like this idea, and I want to hear your your idea, and we'll figure out how to make the comic together. And it it meant a lot to me that he was so open to hearing from new voices and to giving writers a chance to be featured in his with his gorgeous gorgeous art. So um yeah, it's been a really crazy 3-year experience. That's really wonderful. It is a really rare opportunity to, you know, be able to connect with an artist who has a following um you know, who's looking for writers to, to partner with and that's such a smart way for you to bring a diverse range of voices together to tell stories about like I, at least a dozen kids with, you know, really different life experiences. So, so bravo to that. I mean, reading this the first time I was just struck by how every new chapter, there was a different, a, a kid who was going through a different kind of family situation or who was a different kind of person um, living their life and how authentic those stories felt. And I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the fact that you guys have all these different writers working on that is a huge part of why that worked. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I was so excited that some of the stories are very emotional and weighty and dealing with, like, very important topics. And some of them are goofy bursts of sunshine. <laughs> um, Chris Moore's uh, story, The Alchemist and the Blacksmith, is this, like, hilarious farcical take on capitalism. Um, <laughs> it, it, was, it was so... Uh, wonderful working with like a, a variety of voices and, and approaches. Um, and the, one of the real big challenges of the book that we all worked on for quite a while is once, once those core stories uh, were established and, and, and fleshed out and I had rough drafts of them all, then we had to really settle down and figure out, okay, what order do these go in? How do we tie everything together as cohesively as possible so that it feels like a really compelling unified reading experience that like kind of really builds towards something um, rather than just a collection of short stories. Um, and, you know, I think the whole team pulled together. Our editors were amazing in that regard. Uh, and I, I'm super happy with the, with the result. Yeah. I was really pleased that, Things didn't stop for the writing team, for the the writers only team, because Chad did include, you know, was a part of the writing process. But it didn't stop with the scripts. If it did, I would have been done with this project in fall of 2015. Uh, we were all really um, kind of in the trenches. Uh, we all have a we have a a little uh, private Facebook group where we do all of our correspondence and all of our discussions and that's been really helpful for us to um, to see Chad's pages as they would come in and we would support not only, you know, not e only giving feedback for the art, but also for the stories. So it was a really, it was a really positive, supportive, constructive way to do the project. I think everybody had really good points and we kind of fine tuned things as we went along. So, 
while all of us only had one or two chapters per the book, it still felt like we took ownership as for the book as a whole as well. It wasn't just a couple of chapters and then we were done with the project. So, yeah, it feels, it feels really special now because we all kind of took the pieces that we made and made the whole bigger than its parts. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I suspected this would be good just based on, you know, the preview information, but I don't really think I fully absorbed the scale of the collaboration and how much of a good feeling book this was going to be until I really began to look at it. Um, I, I noticed, and I, I, I'm super excited. You guys had, um, Chad, I think you mentioned something about there being some additional um, paper craft designs for kids so they can, you know, make their own, uh, Cardboard Kingdom inspired uh, costumes and masks and stuff on their own. But I just, I, I love how much the story is about encouraging kids to be creative and play and make their own worlds. Yeah, we definitely, during the uh, early review stage, so when uh, some of the review copies were sent out to reviewers, what we heard back and what was actually in several of the reviews is after I read the book, I gave it to my kid or like before I got to read the book, I gave it to my kid and they won't give it back. So that was, that was about the best compliment we could have gotten in those early stages. Uh, And, and the other thing that we heard from them was my kid immediately started grabbing for any cardboard they could find and they wanted to make their own costumes. And we had had, Chad can speak a little more to this, but we had had the plans for the paper crafts um, in the works at that time when we started getting those early reviews, but we weren't ready to announce it yet. So we were all very anxiously going like, we have more, we have stuff to tell you about it. We like, Hmm. we were wanting those kids to find out about the paper crafts as soon as possible, but we wanted to wait until the book had just come out so that they'd be a nice reveal. Sorry, hold on. I got, there was, there was like a reggaeton moment happening. Um, can you repeat the very last sentence that you said? Oh, just that we were all wanting, we were all wanting to tell the kids, like we got more stuff coming, but we wanted to wait for it to be a surprise right before the book came out. Ah, well, I, I definitely feel like this has a certain feeling of like being an activity leading book that, yeah, like you're going to give this to kids and they're going to want to go and, and do it and make it themselves. Uh, but you also are looking at, there, I feel like there's, so many smart educational practices in this in terms of the way you're talking and thinking about challenging home situations like, you know, uh, kids who aren't able to live with their, with their mom because she's, I presume, presumably off page dealing with drug addiction or alcohol addiction of some kind, or um, another kid who's, it seems like her mom's boyfriend um, is, is is a bad person who needs to be kept out of their house. And like there's complex psychological situations in here that I thought were handled really well. And what was your, like, did you guys talk with, was there, was there there a child psychology um, research done in how how to handle those or or how did you approach those challenging parts? Um, I, I don't, I don't know if we just lucked out (laughs) with our approach. (laughs) Um, I feel like I personally do not have any expertise with, um, you know, young children's uh, psychology or developmental educational literary approaches. Um, you know, I, I really encouraged the collaborators to tell as rich and complicated and nuanced and emotional stories as they wanted to. Um, and the main thing we always wanted to keep in mind was that it was, you know, appropriate for children and um, clear enough that a child would understand what was happening, hopefully. But um, we never tried to dumb things down or to simplify things. In fact, mm-hmm. I was, I was always trying to like add an emotional wrinkle to a story. Um, that was and, actually, sorry. Uh, that was actually oh, no, something no, no, that chat. No. Oh, no, no, go, <laughs> that go was ahead, go that, ahead, sorry. <laughs> okay, that was something that Chad had actually done when we were talking in the very early stages before I had been officially brought on to the, seri- 
to the project, Chad had had done a phone interview with me, not interview, a phone conversation, but it felt like an interview because I wanted the pro I wanted to be part of the project so bad. And one of the things he said was, I like the basic idea, but what if we, what if we added a twist towards the end? Um, so, so like to not spoil anything, but my character Sophie has this kind of triumphant moment in the middle of her story, but then kind of her, her, enthusiasm balloon gets popped a bit uh mm -hmm. and that was something that chad had brought up like let's let's add a little complication into this kind of success that, that uh sophie has but that was what it was like for a lot of our stories was chad kind of pushing us to go a little bit further and and complicate the stories yeah and I, do you I guys mind to... if i spoil it a little bit because, i mean i feel like oh sure because I, I feel like it's really important. I, I, you know, I, I feel like it's important for having the conversation. I think this is obviously something that people of all ages will enjoy, but I do sort of think of my audience as being more like folks who will buy this for other young people. And for me, mm -hmm. like having the story where you have a little girl whose, you know, grandmother tells her that she's being too big and being too loud and makes her feel bad for it. And then the girl figures out a way around that and how to still be proud and who she is. Like that's the sort of lesson that I want to give to, to children in my, you know, children in my life, because I, i certainly feel not for my family because we're all very loud and big people, but, um, but um, for other people, like there's a lot of social messages telling you that you're too loud and that you're too much. And I actually, Katie, I could totally tell that was your story. Even before <laughs> I noticed your name on it, because I sort of flipped through it really quickly and um, the first time I went through it and then I went through and read it again. And I was at the end of reflecting through it. I was like, I bet the one with the, with the girl who dresses up as her own version of the Hulk is by Katie. And I was right. And I love that because I think that speaks to the fact that a, a girl like that, that story needs to be told and that we're folks who would uh, see that and recognize that and make that real, you know? Um, yeah. Like little girls. Well, thank who you. Yeah. Hulk, yeah. You know? <laughs> um and, yeah, yeah, that was and, definitely that was all very intentional on my part. Everything you're saying, I think, again, that conversation that Chad and I had, I think I went into because going going into my very um, comic analytical background as as a past critic, I was talking about how a lot of my inspiration was the fact that girls are taught to be small, both in personality and demeanor but also in like size i mean when you think about like man man spreading <laughs> uh but but even just yeah like or the fact that girls aren't supposed to be larger they're supposed to be petite and and but then also in keeping quiet and one of the and i know that that gets even more complicated for little girls of color and it meant and especially black girls and it was a priority for me to handle the story carefully and also have that message of, of, you know, it's, it's funny because I think I described it as when we're talking about power fantasies and comics, I think that there's something to be said about the power fantasy for little girls to be as loud and bold and unabashedly themselves as they want and to do that through like and I think that that's something that you see a lot throughout the whole book is is kids having that freedom to be allowed to play with who with the kind of person that they see themselves as that was a big thing and to see them not only not only you know survive through their chapter but really thrive with the rest of the kids is a big part of, I think, what makes the book work. It wasn't just about that story and the lessons she learned. It's about seeing her afterwards and seeing her be be a freer human being. Um, but, yeah, that was all very, very intentional, very kind of at the front of what, of what I wanted to do with the story. And it made me really happy that Chad saw, saw the potential in – my vision for for Sophie. Yay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and Chad, from your end, you know, I mean, you, you you've been working on um, the sorcerer uh, the sorceress story for for a while. Um, you know, for you, like, 
what is it like writing uh, a story about a little kid who's experimenting with drag? Well, you know, it was really me sort of trying to interrogate not only was I interested in, in drag culture, but like going back further, I had always loved the sort of cold blooded, glamorous Disney villains, the divas, uh, the Emma Frosts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I was wondering why is that? Huh? I don't, huh? That is interesting. And the best answer I've come up with, and this definitely informs the sorceress um, is that, you know, little queer boys or, or gender nonconforming uh, kids, you know, they, they can't really associate themselves or relate themselves to the sort of role models of like masculine power, you know, like looking at Superman is just sort of like looking at a, a, a distant planet. Like you're never going to mm-hmm. be that, you know, and, yeah. and, but then you see some character like Cruella DeVille or Maleficent or Ursula from Little Mermaid. And it's just like, they own themselves and their own distinctive looks. They're fashionable and powerful. They don't care about rules or what society thinks about them. They're amazing creatures, you know? And I think that it represents this sort of like alternative mode of carrying yourself and of being powerful uh, and being yourself in your own distinctive shape or style. And um, so that's, that's what I was really interested in with the sorceress. Um, and I don't know if people read as deeply into the story uh, as I had hoped. I, I hope so. But like a key <laughs> element, well, a key element, um, like the wrinkle I wanted to add at the end of the sorceress story, the first chapter is that throughout the chapter, Jack is trying, to, is trying to, with the help of his sister, summon the courage and creativity to fully inhabit this magnificent character of the sorceress. And yet, even once the sorceress is there, Jack still expects his neighbor friend to play the helpless princess. And, and then the neighbor friend says no way and leaves. And it's only when she returns as this amazing knight in white, brilliant armor, do they really um, both fulfill their full potential as sort of playful arch enemies, you know, and have many adventures and then a cool glass of lemonade at the end of the day. Um, you yeah. know, so I, yeah. No, that yeah, I always want to me to see, to see them, to have that, that, you know, that the girl doesn't want that particular archetype for herself either. And to have a space for a little girl to be a night. That was a hundred percent me when I was a kid. Oh my God. Good. Yeah. I also re I really loved, um, Sophie getting to be in uh, Manuel Bentecourt's uh, story, The Prince. I think I talked about it on Twitter not not too long ago because I felt like I could finally start talking about things actually in the book since the book had been out for a little bit. Uh, and one of my favorite things about that is it, it plays into a lot of the things with the sorceress's orig- or you know introduction at the beginning of the book that Sophie kind of gets because they're trying to recreate this Disney-esque movie, uh, Sophie being the only girl in their little in their little playtime group at the moment uh, gets stuck being like the damsel. And she is immediately not happy about that because she wants to be a big monster and being the damsel is really boring. And Jack says, you know, it's only boring if you stick to the script. And throughout that story, it's really about them subverting gender roles and kind of dismissing dismissing the very like traditional rigid uh gender expectations and they end up actually having fun once they all get to be the characters that they want to be instead of the ones that the movie tried to fit them into and i really love that and it also has some of my favorite sophie faces Chad's very good at drawing Sophie in general, but uh, there are some great faces of Sophie in that, and it, they always make me smile in that chapter. Uh, yeah, no, and I love I love Manuel Benincourt's chapter of the Prince, like you know, especially because you have you know you have a little boy who's trying to figure out where he fits into the story. He's definitely either gay or bi, but probably probably gay from the way the narrative situates him, and he doesn't want to be the princess, and he doesn't want to be he wants to be an equal with the 
you know, but he wants to be a different, he has a different archetype that he doesn't feel like he's the prince, but he loves the prince. And so like, where does he fit into the story and kind of being the rogue um, and finding his place in that is, um, oh, that was so lovely. Yeah, Manuel is actually a, a film critic and has a PhD, I believe, in literature. So this is like his this depictions of romance on screen and, and Disney fairy tales is something that he's thought extensively about. So he just brought like a wealth of knowledge there. Um, and it, it was and, such a treat showing each character trying out each different role from like the Disney-esque movie that they had just seen. Um, I also, and I think Manuel has talked about this um, in a few different interviews, so I feel like it's all right to to say it as well. But that was definitely one of the stories, even though the majority, honestly, of the stories that were written for this were based directly on all of our writers' experiences. I know for Manuel, a lot of it uh, was pulled from his childhood, which is why the, you know, I actually, it's funny because I've seen some reviews say that the that the um, gender and and um, sexuality kind of tones in the book, where some people were like, oh, it's very overt, and I was like, really? Because I thought we were being way too subtle. Um, <laughs> but there's but there's some subtlety I think in the prints, and I think why why it works is because it's coming from a writer who can bring that subtlety to it because it's a lived experience. I know that that was what it was like um, for me in part, like I said, my, my story is also, or maybe I didn't mention this, but I don't think it's that much of a secret. My, my story is very um, autobiographical uh, as much, as much as it can be since Sophie and I still have very different, you know, are very different people, but, the being the loud girl who talks too much was definitely where I started off with and how, and how Sophie came to be. I know that one of the other, uh, one of the other chapters that I think is incredibly, incredibly subtly done and nuanced is uh, Barbara's the mad scientist. That one again, um, Barbara is, is from the Dominican Republic and and so is her character Amanda, and I think she brings like the story could only have been written by her, and mm-hmm. and the fact that it's so nuanced and and yeah, I just like I am I'm always really I admire how well that chapter works because of what Barbara brought to it. Yeah, I loved the way it was talking about her family's immigration status, like. I mean, everything in here was so timely to the lives of families, you know, I just, oh, I love that. Um, yeah, it, it's funny, though, because we, we started this in 2015. So as, you know, everything, you know, as things got really bad in 2016 and 2017, we kept, I know that, and I think the whole team felt this way, that a lot of us were counting down the days till the book came out because we knew that this could be really important for kids. And we we wanted it to help kids feel less alone and and have some have some connection and feel like this could be a neighborhood that they could live in, you know. Mm-hmm. With every with space for everybody, and you know, you have the kids who are socially awkward figuring out how they can find their place. And I, you know, I'm I'm definitely going to talk to the folks. I don't know if you know um, Mia Birdsong. She uh, actually participated in the tweet chat that I hosted. Um, about Steven Universe, bridging some of our interests together about Steven Universe back this past spring. <laughs> um, and her, she works in an organization that um, helps people think about families that are beyond the nuclear family, you know, thinking about different kinds of family makeups, uh, gender diverse families, generationally diverse families, et cetera. And I'm definitely going to encourage her to check this book out because this feels like something that would be really in line with their, their programming that they're trying to do. I, I, yeah. I don't know. Have you guys spoken to any folks from like the sort of nonprofit uh, world about ways that groups could use the book? Because I have ideas, so <laughs> we can happily talk about that after. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I would be excited to hear about those. Um, I I really do hope that these stories um, kind of 
that, that kids both see themselves in the stories and benefit from that, but also in reading such a variety of stories, gain a certain amount of empathy and understanding for people of all sorts, you know, um, in all kinds of different situations and dealing with all kinds of problems. Um, well, but, one of, uh, yeah. Oh, I was going to say one of the things, and again, this was not any choice that I can take ownership of, but I think this was actually a Chad thing. One of the things that I thought was really great was, was um, in the blobs chapter, I think there were a few variations on the brother dynamic of it. Um, we, I think the short of it is at one point we had um, Nate, the prince was actually not um, Elijah, the blobs brother. It was another character and we ended up kind of mashing those two, those two family together so that he was. And one mm-hmm. of the things I really like, I, I really liked that Chad, um, I'm giving you, I'm giving you the credit for this Chad, but let me, please let me know if I'm, if I'm wrong on this about this choice, but the fact that, um, that both Elijah and Nate have pretty different um, skin tones. And so that could mean, obviously there are, there are biological siblings that have much different skin tones or they could be stuff siblings or they could be half brothers we don't we don't really um make the like make that specific but i like the fact that we were able to show these two brothers and there are families that have that have siblings that look like that and if they read the book and they actually get to see themselves and it's just treated as how these characters are it i think it it's a really special element to that to the book beyond um, beyond some of the more specific representation. Hmm. Yeah, definitely space for interpretation and different family structures to think about them and like how you would relate to it and how you'd ID with it and all that. Yeah, we we had wanted the Blobs family to be a blended family, um, but also the Blobs story is wordless. So I Mm -hmm. don't take it for granted that any readers actually think that they're brothers or if they just think that these two boys are friends. So I can't pat myself on the back too much because I don't know if it actually comes across. And I I also can't recall if it was my suggestion or someone else's suggestion to uh, make that family dynamic that way. Um, there, there are certain, you know, moments of the creation of the book that like stand out very clearly to me. And there are other things that just are a complete blur um as you can imagine from such a big complicated project with so many people and over such a long time you know well i i definitely thought it was an interesting touch to have that story be wordless um you know it, it i think it kind of also made me think about the, you know different kids different learning styles people some people being more verbal and other people being less so yeah, you know, a lot of my solo work in the past has ended up being wordless for some reason or another. I think it's because my storytelling style is so much uh, balanced toward visual storytelling that oftentimes the idea of adding dialogue or narration feels superfluous. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yep, the first chapter, The Sorceress, is wordless, and then The Blob Story is wordless. Um, and then there's one other story that's mostly wordless. Um, and, and, you know, it wasn't an intentional, like, sort of, like you said, uh, um, catering to different reading styles. It was more just purely from like a storytelling standpoint, what stories need dialogue or, and, and what, what ones sort of work better told entirely visually with just focusing on playful visual juxtapositions or comparisons or funny transitions. Um, and uh, we, we were honestly a little bit self-conscious about going back and forth, um, but I really hope that, that kids like it. We, we have seen a lot of kids younger than the recommended reading age uh, reading the book. Uh, the recommended reading age is 9 to 12. And, oh, okay, got uh, it. You know, yeah, we've seen, we've seen um, you know, five-year-olds sitting down with the book, and you know, I, I certainly hope they get a lot out of it. But I, I do hope that those stories that are entirely wordless will be especially um, 
comprehensible to them and that they'll be able to get a lot of fun out of them. I mean, I, I, I always want to ask. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say really quickly that I think the reason why the silent or the silent, the dialogue list um, chapters work and why we were able to do it is honestly because Chad like tuning his, his sense of layouts and facial expressions. And uh, it's just so good. Um, I, I was really, ext- I've been lucky with every artist I've worked on both uh, the cardboard kingdom and then, and then the following art, but I was extremely lucky that my first comic project ever was with someone who's as good at what he does as Chad. Um, and yeah, I, there were many times when I would vaguely tweet how much I, how happy I was with the, with the book um, and not be able to explain quite why. And a lot of it was because Chad's pages just look so beautiful. So, and it, and they work so well in terms of sequential art. So I feel very, I just feel very lucky even, even three years later. Chad, I'd love to talk with you a bit more about your art. Yeah. I mean, how did you start uh, doing art professionally and, and, and what, you know, what technique do you use? This all looks like it's digital. Yeah. It is all digital. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I had done like my own little comics in high school, uh, but then I went to college and I got really sort of sidelined by all these like fine art practices because certainly my college did not have anything in comics. Um, But I sort of burnt out on all of that. And by the, by the end of college, I was pursuing comics again. Um, And I was completely clueless about any sense of um, uh, uh, reality. I I truly thought that like comics would be easy and fun and, uh, that I would literally be making a living from comics within six months of graduating college. Um, But Cardboard Kingdom is my first published book and I'm, I just turned 35. So it's been like a long road. You know, I can't begrudge that, you know, it's the experiences you go through and the years of work you put into it are, are what lead to the abilities that allow you to take on a project like this. Um, About seven years ago, I started drawing, uh, drag queens from RuPaul's Drag Race and that those became far more popular than any of the self-published comics I'd ever done and um, so I made it an illustration series uh, where every week when the show was on I would draw my favorite few looks from the queens Um, and when I get permission from queens to sell prints I sell prints and um, I've been doing that full-time for or you know that's been a big chunk of my income for about five years and um, it basically subsidized the creation of Cardboard Kingdom. It gave me the freedom to spend an outrageous amount of time on this crazy collaboration, uh, getting the book to a point where we thought it was as good as we could make it before we even showed it to publishers. Um, we, I'm, I'm someone who likes to like over-prepare, and so when we sent this to publishers, we had like 70 pages of final color art and a full rough draft of the rest of the book. Um, Because I really wanted to showcase like how good the stories were that everyone had written. Um, I didn't want an outline that an editor would say, eh, let's cut that story. Um, I wanted to like really sell them on each and every character. I really, I just really love the, uh, I love your your uh, RuPaul Drag Race art. You know, I've noticed that, I definitely noticed that at FlameCon in years past, and I'm, I don't watch the show, but um, always was super drawn to it. Thank you. Do you, uh, yeah, I mean, who are some of your big visual art influences? Jeez. Um, you know, a lot of my big influences, I think, are cartoonists. Um and, and definitely some illustrators. Uh, you know, I grew up in the 90s reading, you know, Jim Lee X-Men comics and John Byrne. Um, uh, and I just, I've always loved that pop art aesthetic. Like, absolutely. So even when I go in a more painterly or realistic route, 
I, I always find myself coming back to like simpler, bolder, um, colorful stuff. And, um, and I really, you know, I've been rereading slowly bone. Um, hmm. I think, I think Jeff Smith was like at the height of cartooning excellence with his drawings of the, the phone bone and the other, the other bone cousins. Um, just like distilling, like the magic of cartooning is distilling a whole expression and pose and movement and action into a static drawing on paper. It like a cartoon can feel so alive and vivid and it's hard to believe that it's literally just like a still image printed on paper. And, and that was definitely um, what I was trying to do with cardboard kingdom. I really tried not to include any extra details or embellishments um, that were not, that weren't needed for the story. You know, it was purely about telling the story as clearly and emotionally as possible. Hmm. Uh, who's your publisher? Um, Knopf Books for Young Readers. It's uh, an imprint of of Random House Children's Books. So, like, you guys are for sale everywhere. Yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, it's it's been it's been really wonderful working with them. I uh, absolutely uh, have loved working with our editors Jenny and Marissa, and um, our previous editor Steve. Um, they never, ever, ever pushed us to tone down any of the many <laughs> queer uh, elements of the book. Um, if, they celebrated if anything, they it. pushed. Yeah, I was gonna say, if anything, they pushed a little bit more. I think. Um, the way I've described it is by the time we we sent the book off to to be printed, it was the best version of the book. They only elevated what we already had and fine tuned and and made made it the best story that it could be. I was every time we kind of went back and forth, the book only got better. Um mm. and and that's and that's one of the reasons like that and um JD's uh JD Boucher um at with uh, Moonlighters were really like the prime examples for me of editors on comics that that help the you know like what edit, what a comic editor is supposed to be so and, I feel yeah. like I said I feel very lucky between Chad and between our editors and between our co-writers it's it's been a, a insanely great experience and and one of the really exciting things about working with such a large publisher is that, like you said, they have the resources, they have the relationships with booksellers, with librarians, with educators to really get the word out. And, and we were really lucky enough to get great reviews from School Library Journal, from Kirkus, from Publishers Weekly. So, you know, what we hear is that, you know, we're going to have a great presence in libraries, uh, in schools. Uh, and and I'm just so thrilled because all along I had been worrying: Are we making this this book too progressive? Are we making it? Are we are we dealing with too many uh, queer characters? And and like you know, I never would have expected to have a same-sex crush in a book that's published by one of America's biggest publishers. But um, but we do, and it's out there. And and the sense I get is that. Uh, like you said, it, it's available everywhere and hopefully makes it into so many kids' hands who are excited to read it. And, and really I'm really excited. Oh, sorry. I, I was just going to say I'm really excited also. One of the things that I thought was really profound about the book um, was how it gives a good example for parents on how to handle some of these topics. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, so Sophie's mom is a kind of good example of of validating your kids' feelings and and supporting them. But I also, one of my favorite characters in the whole book is Jack's mom, who is yeah. a, a saint for not, for putting up with what she does. Um, I actually have, I've told a story a little bit that um, when we had seen the pages for, or like the rough pages for when Jack gets, um, gets uh, his little sister to bring paint up the stairs because it's a magic potion or it's for their magic potion. And, 
and so they get paint everywhere on the stairs, and the and their mom is freaking out. I think I told Chad like, this woman has gone through so much, and we were gonna. I knew that he um that Chad was gonna draw her boyfriend, and I was like, make him extra hunky. Like this woman deserves <laughs> to have a a you know hunky, loving, a uh, very queer accepting boyfriend who makes cookies like give her just the cutest the cutest boyfriend but one of the one of my favorite scenes in the whole book and I think is especially powerful for fans uh, when the sorceress next door was was a short story Um, I actually know someone who was a big fan of the short story and I kind of I sent um, I sent them a a little snippet of of the army of evil chapter where this scene happens and they were very pleased. Um, But, you know, during that chapter where um, Jack's mom talks to him and, and, or her, I think the, the pronouns change depending on, on what, when at play and whatever. But, um, but I think the way that she handles that support and a hundred percent, 100% love and, you know, um, the fact that she validates Jack's feelings. And, and even though we, we try not to make it, we didn't make it overt exactly, um, you know, Jack's identity, but we make it clear that, that Jack's mom is going to support it a hundred percent. And that was really the biggest, the biggest thing. It's one of my favorite, moments of the whole book and it always makes me feel all all warm inside so i i don't know i i'm still really just a big fan of that moment um so yeah i i i'm really happy for parents to get to to read the book too and maybe learn a little bit along with their kids yeah especially thinking about this in light of the fact that the atlantic wrote yet again let jesse yeah. a completely abusive ignorant it, uh, article about trans people based on junk science and pays him for it repeatedly, even though actual experts have been telling him he's full of lies. So yeah, instead of instead of reading the Atlantic Monthly and talking about their read my book, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Here's a much better look at dealing with LGBTQ kids, including you know trans questioning kids, right? Like this isn't a story yeah. where a kid says specifically, "Hello, like my gender is X, Y, and Z." It is sort of like you know Jack could. Jack could be trans or Jack could just be gender non-variant. It's, it's, it's open for however the kid and their, you know, feels that they should identify it, but it, it shows you how to support, you know, regardless. Yeah. But speaking of like the publisher being really great about there being a lot of LGBTQ themes in the kids book. I mean, it really seems that major book publishers, including their kid imprints are more willing to have LGBTQ youth content than, a lot of the comics industry does in terms of like letting us be the center of stories right now. I, I think I was going to say, I think part of that was our editor, Steve, who is, I don't think this, again, I don't think that this is um, revealing any information. He is, he is queer. And I think that him really going to bat was a huge part of it, which just goes to show that it's not enough to have, you know, LGBTQ a writers, or, you know, creators that also have mm-hmm. to be instilled in the publisher. We need those, we need those people because they're going to be helping pull the creators in. Yeah, I, I do think that there is a lot of acceptance um, among mainstream publishers um, with, with queer issues. Are, are you saying, are you suggesting that like Marvel and DC doesn't handle queer subject matter as well or didn't you have that specific comparison yeah i mean i was intimating that you know there there seems to be a continual cycle of books getting canceled um, and the refusal to have lgbtq characters in their kid focused titles um Mm. kids properties like i know that there's i I don't know what like what is going to happen in the new line that has uh america chavez as a character in their in their kids book it's not clear to me how they're going to be addressing that still well, um, and, and you know what? It's it's hard to know how to deal with that subject matter in a way that is appropriate for kids. You know, I I um I felt 
comfortable exploring um, the idea of kids playing with different gender roles. I feel, I felt mm-hmm. like that is like a very relatable thing. When, when I was first, you know, conceiving of cardboard kingdom, I, I really didn't expect to have like a crush, like a queer crush uh, in the book. Like I, I just wasn't even sure how to do that. And that's one of the reasons I was so pleased when Manuel uh, sent in his proposal and it was such a beautifully um, innocent and wholesome queer crush, a boy, boy crush mm-hmm. um, told in such an eloquent way that I was like, Oh, that's perfect for this book. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I think, I think um, unless you're a queer creator who specifically wants to include it thoughtfully in their story, uh, it can feel like possibly um, a controversial thing that you, that would be easier just to avoid, you know, um, mm-hmm. especially, you know, because they're, I can certainly imagine some people being outraged possibly by just the idea of having this subject matter in the book. But at the same time, I would have a very, very hard time imagining any reasonable reader reading any of these stories and having a problem with, with our stories of like love and acceptance and creativity and empowerment, you know? Well, I mean, Um, you know, what you guys are doing here is a lot like with the lumberjanes, like you're showing that you could have, a, a same gender love interest and it's not there's and have it be completely kid appropriate because it's not about sex it's just not it's about kid crushes it's, it's it's a it's a pre it's a pre-sexual you know like yeah point in their lives so it's totally yeah, appropriate my, they're holding hands maybe you know right yeah i feel like i feel like it goes into if if you see a like if you see a a little boy and little girl having a like very early kind of puppy love relationship in a book and it you don't bat an eye then what then and it, it's on the same level with with a same gender relationship mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. you know I think it it is like if you're talking about like puppy love romance that's pretty innocent and that's not you know that's not scandalous by any means so why can't you know little boys and little girls see see that from a not hetero point of view? You know, um, yeah. Because and I mean, and we and this is certainly something that's that's always um you know an argument with people um, that are against uh, queer subject matter for kids. But you know the idea that that queerness is is um, like by its by its definition an adult thing is you know one of the things that we all as as queer storytellers have to kind of push against especially when when we're trying to make stories for kids the whole idea is no you are you know you exist like queer kids exist they are not they are not being inappropriate by existing and And I think that um, that the prince and the knave uh, do do a good job of just showing that kind of sweetness and just the fact that that they're happy how they are. Um, and obviously Jack, who is he's not always sweet, but he is. But but you know what he's doing is by you know largely just innocent and and expressive and. I like the fact that our book celebrates celebrates those different elements. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I really think this is such a treasure. I'm so excited to share this with kids. You know, I know you said it was, you were thinking uh, that, the, that the book says it's a nine to 12. I, I definitely think that parents could read it with younger children for sure. Just, you know, you'd have to like, read well, thank it you. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't think there's yeah. anything scandalous. I, I think, I think that there are some, nuanced emotional um, interchanges that I think would be really helpful for a parent to sort of walk through with their child. And, Mm -hmm. and perhaps some of the reading would be um, assisted with the, with the parent. Um, But yeah, I, I do absolutely agree. I, I, um, I don't think there's anything like scandalous or inappropriate for a younger reader. It's just a matter of um, getting as much as they can out of the story. I I also feel like a lot of, a lot of the story is 
stuff kids can just wrap their heads around in general um, with, you know, with some exceptions, but again, that's where, you know, parents can reach their kids or parents can sit them down and kind of explain things. I think maybe like Sophie's story is, can be a little rough. Um, and obviously the gargoyle is, is probably the most serious of all the stories, Yeah. but, but I feel like even just, even if they just read through, you know, quite a bit of it, I, I think that younger kids can certainly get a lot out of it, especially since, since some of the kids in the neighborhood are on the younger side. I, I have to imagine that there are going to be a lot of kids that relate to the goblin and, and the beast in terms of being, in terms of being a uh, little terrors. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have the older kid, too. It really has the gamut of age ranges in here. Well, I want to thank you guys for joining me. I'm really just, I'm really excited about thinking about all the folks I can introduce this to. Um, Thank you so much. I also appreciate some, I, I appreciate the subtle ways in which popular intellectual properties that meant a lot to us as kids, whether it's Disney, which was not the case for me, or Marvel, um, you know, like you can see how they color kids' imaginations without this mm-hmm. feeling like a commercial venture that's about trying to ride off of somebody's brand. Like, you know, the fact that you can sort of smell the Hulk's existence in the background of Sophie's character, <laughs> or you can see the Disney, you know, characters that inhabit the mind of the rogue and the prince. Like, it's, but you're not like in their IP. It's just sort of your characters exist in a world that in which kids have also observed these things, but are doing things that are even more creative with them rather than limiting themselves to just saying I'm Iron Man, you know, or I'm Elsa yeah. or what have you. I don't know if I've mentioned this in any other interview. So technically this is an exclusive, but uh, since <laughs> I know that you're a fan of, of Steven universe, I know one of the, one of the touch points very early on in terms of Sophie's design, even before I thought of her as a banshee, um, I thought of Sugalite from from uh, yeah. Steven Universe. So, like, big and loud. She was a little bit, like, ruder and nastier in the, in the original version. And I think this was actually before – what's funny is I know that – I know, actually, that Chad has become a fan of the show since then. But at the time, he hadn't seen it, so I had to send him a link to to the picture of, like, this giant monster woman – um, but yeah, that was that. That was also a, a major influence for me, uh, and which is funny because you know Steven Universe is such a queer show, and while Sophie's Sophie's story isn't necessarily about queerness or you know about her her gender, there are definitely elements from the show that I pulled in in terms of her story as well. Well, so, that yeah, does remind me. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No. No, you go. <laughs> that does remind me. I believe that we're due for an episode of Together Breakfast, your popular podcast about Steven Universe. I was going to say, Together Breakfast was the Comics Alliance uh, title that we are not allowed to use. We are oh, uh, Crystal Claws. You're fine. Don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, yes, that's the uh, podcast. Sorry. Yeah, I don't know if L has. I know we've we've recorded the um one after the big after the big reveal, uh after the big news. So I don't yeah. know if I'll put that up yet. I might nudge them about that. But uh I also know that we have one coming up in July too. So there there will be more uh Steven Universe talk from me uh very soon. Oh good. That is exactly what I wanted to hear. So yeah, it's like I I can handle waiting a little bit longer for my Steven Universe podcast content, but I can't. <laughs> I appreciate that. Like so long, yeah, so long it, as I know that it's going to be made, so long as I know that I will eventually, sooner than later, perhaps, but at some point in the near future, be able to listen to your wonderful Steven Universe podcast. Um, yeah, we I, have I, opinion. Like, trust me, we had opinions on that, and and we will definitely have opinions about the stuff coming up. Uh, like I said, I will, I'll nudge Elle about it and see what they do. Um, so speaking of I always, which, this, yeah. No, sorry. What were you going to say? Speaking of which, this is definitely everybody's opportunity to promote any additional projects that you guys have coming out. 
Um, uh, do, you, do you want, want to go to first, Chad, or? Yeah. Uh, I don't have anything I can talk about, um, but we will be doing tons of great bookstore events, um, especially around Chicago um, and uh, over the next coming months. And uh, we will also be doing uh, FlameCon in New York, the uh, Queer Comics podcast. Yeah, a bunch of, um, unfortunately, I don't think Katie can make it, but uh, several of the nope. other East Coast uh, collaborators will be there with me. Um, so we're really excited about that. Oh, that's really so great. I would like to seeing you there. So I'm going to uh, make sure to to bring this up before I forget and before I start plugging my, my personal stuff. But uh, you had mentioned that, uh, that we have paper crafts. Uh, we do. It's with an amazing paper craft designer. Chad, you always do better at pronouncing his name than I do. You're right. And thank you for reminding me to bring this up. Yeah. So um, yeah. The, the day that we released the cover image of the Cardboard Kingdom, um, a paper craft designer named Costas Natanos contacted me and said, hey, I love that cover. Have you ever thought about making costume designs for those kids? And I said, oh my gosh, we have been dying to see kids in cosplay of these characters, but we don't know anything about how to actually design that stuff. And so I worked with him for a number of months and he designed um, 12 different free downloadable paper craft designs for a bunch of the different costumes you see in the Cardboard Kingdom. Um, and they should fit both adults and kids. So anyone should feel free to join in. Um, and uh, they're, yeah, they're available on our website, thecardboardkingdom.com. There should be an easy link to follow there. Um, and uh, we're also doing a, a costume contest all summer. Uh, every month we'll pick uh, one or maybe a few winners. Uh, and the prize will be me drawing them in their winning costume as a Cardboard Kingdom character. Um, so definitely also look for that information on our website as well. Yeah, we are, we are super excited to get to see all those costumes. We, are, we have been waiting too long to see, to see kids cosplay these characters, so we're very excited. Yeah, I mean, you guys have people have enough time till Halloween, you know, so mm-hmm. get on that, yeah. family. Um, so, Chad, yep. where's the best place for our listeners to find you on the Internet? Um, ChadSellComics.com or uh, ChadSell01 on Instagram or Twitter. And then Excellent. I am at, oh, sorry. I am at, uh, at Just Plain Tweets, uh, where I'm at, I tweet fairly prolifically. Uh, you can also find me on KatieShankle.com. I have two different podcasts, both of which are behind as as we talked about a little bit, I have um, Supergirl Gab with Chris Haley, which uh, the the season finale of Supergirl just happened, I think, yesterday, and we are a few episodes behind, so that will happen. And I am also a little bit behind uh, again posting the Steven Universe uh, stuff with L. Collins, and that but that podcast is uh, Crystal Claude, and uh, we have. We have quite a few episodes of that too. So besides that, uh, and I think Chad mentioned the conventions, but uh, Chad and I are also going to be doing quite a few, all, all the cardboard uh, kingdom creators are doing different events in their areas of America, but Chad and I are both in Chicago. So we have a few different book events coming up throughout the summer. If you follow us, or you follow uh, the the book at the Cardboard K on Twitter, you and also I believe on Instagram. Uh, then you should be able to see when those events are happening. Fabulous. Well, thank you both. Happy Pride to you all, and, um, oh, and thank, thank you for you. joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Happy Pride. Thank Happy you. Pride. So- <laughs> So uh, to our listeners, thanks for joining Graphic Policy Radio. If you came on to the show late, you can uh, listen to the rest of this episode online. We're going to be on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, at our Graphic Policy's website, graphicpolicy.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Elana Brook- underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Uh, next week, we have a really exciting couple of guests for you guys. We'll be talking with the creators of the Beyond Anthology. Woo, I've been wanting to have them on for a while. 
really a groundbreaking LGBTQ sci-fi uh, comics anthology that has like been wildly successful Kickstarters and has been a really sold out book and uh, a place for new talent to have been sh- uh, showcased in creative ways. So stay tuned for that. And um, thank you for, for listening to Graphic Policy Radio. And I hope you'll all be marching in the streets with us on January, I'm sorry, January, on June 30th to keep families together. Again, go to um, Families Belong Together. Uh, and yep, yeah, so this is Elon Levin signing up for Graphic Policy. Keep it geeky.